Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. Hi, Joshua here, producer for Living Wealthy Radio. Today's talk has got to be one of the most enjoyable interviews we've done here on Living Wealthy Radio. Teresa is sitting down with a fellow financial strategist discussing how to better manage your money. And what came out of it was a fun, fact-filled perspective that you just won't find in the financial world these days. Most Americans have the wrong idea about investing and retirement funds. And today's talk goes through all the nuts and bolts of what you need to know. There are a ton of specific facts and figures in this episode. The two really lay it all out there in terms of what the financial planners aren't telling you and what makes for a truly resilient and successful investment strategy. Stay tuned because I know you're going to get a ton of helpful insights from this talk. Today's enriching fact of the day is that you can know and articulate your life purpose by answering five simple questions. So many people walk around unfulfilled and lacking direction throughout life. They may have a good job, a great education, friends, and nice things, but secretly, they wonder if they're wasting their lives because they haven't taken time to nail down what their life is all about. Fortunately, it's not hard to do. Here are the five questions to answer. Who are you? Simple enough, right? Then, what do you do? Now, this one can be a bit tricky, so think about what your passion is and what you feel most qualified to do. Whatever combines passion and ability in the highest amount is what you do. Thirdly, who do you do it for? In other words, who do you typically impact by doing what you do? Next, what is it those people want and need the most? And most importantly, how are they changed by your work? What do you help them achieve, learn, or become? In taking the time to answer these five questions, who are you, what do you do, who do you do it for, what do they need most, and how are they changed by your work, you will have discovered the most important thing in your life and what your greatest potential is for impacting others. Notice these questions are primarily geared towards others because happy, fulfilled people focus not on themselves but on serving those around them. When you understand and can clearly articulate how to best help other people, you will know your purpose in life. Today's enriching fact reveals that knowing your life purpose is essential to fulfillment and well-being, and that the simplest way to find it is in asking yourself how you can best serve others. You're listening to Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. It's understandable that you might feel in ship shape when the economy is doing well or life is smooth sailing, but when the financial winds kick up or there's an economic downturn or crisis, you realize at the wrong time where the vulnerabilities are in your portfolio. That's why I highly recommend getting a free, customized financial analysis from the team of experts at Financial Battleship. Whether you're a business owner or just looking to shore up your family's finances, Financial Battleship enables you to weather any storm. Their solutions and on-call advisors equip you with liquidity, full use and control of your assets at any time, the option to avoid probate, tax-favored and tax-deferred accumulation and distribution, and so much more. Just head over to buildmybattleship.com for your free analysis, which includes customized insights for cash flow optimization, asset allocation, and a detailed financial blueprint. You'll also get a free ebook loaded with strategic intel for building your financial battleship. Go to buildmybattleship.com and get the confidence to achieve your major financial dreams without the dread of unnecessary risk. Joining us today is Lance Roberts. He is the founder of Clarity Financial and the chief editor of The Real Investment Report. He's a media contributor and expert on investment strategies and market trends. And today, we're discussing potential failure points in the markets and what lies ahead in the coming months and years. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Lance. Thank you. Glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about your approach to investing. 
Well, uh, my approach to investing is based on basically almost 35 years of doing it. I started uh, in managing money of different types in the market back uh, three days before the crash of 1987. I was actually working for a bank at the time, and my boss had me completely convinced the entire crash was my fault. Um, after that, and after the banking industry, I moved into doing more institutional money management. And one of the key issues when you're managing money for institutions is not to lose their capital. They, they, they're very protective about their capital, and they want to make sure that their capital is always there. So putting a lot of capital at risk that is uncontrolled is not something that a lot of institutional investors are really keen on. Um, which is interesting because when you look at what the mainstream media tells individuals, they're like, take all your money, stick it all in stocks, and just hold on, write it out. And you have to understand that investing is a function of risk. We're all guessing at what the future is going to do, right? So we buy Apple stock, we buy Microsoft stock, or we buy GE stock, whatever it is. We're all betting on an outcome in the future that's hopefully – positive, but in a lot of cases, it's not. It is a binary investment for the most part. It's either going to work or it's not. General Electric is the latest example. So it's interesting that what Main Street preaches to the average investor is is to basically go to Vegas, put all your money in, you know, bet all in every hand on hands of poker. And as long as you're winning your hands, it's all great, but eventually you're going to lose. And when you lose, that becomes problematic. See, institutions don't manage their money that way. Man institutions manage everything from risk to understanding what exposures are, volatility. And so our approach to management of our clients' investments, which are mostly people within five to 10 years of retirement or have just retired and they're five to 10 years into their retirement, is about creating a rate of return that is adjusted for what their needs are while controlling that risk. Because the one thing that people can't afford to do is lose a lot of money in retirement. You know, people say this time is different. In 1999, a lot of investors were 25, 30, 35 years old. Today, people are saying this time is different, but this is now 20 years later. Those people that were 30 years old back in 1999, 2000 are now 48 years old. They're different this time. And so the importance of not losing and spending another, you know, seven to eight years getting back to even, which getting back to even is not the same as making money, is not something that people can do. So our approach to, to money management is about the management of risk more than the management of trying to gain returns. So really, bottom line, what you're saying is your background in investing for institutions has influenced how you work with the retail market today or actual clients, mm -hmm. individual, uh, individuals, families, uh, couples preparing for retirement. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's not just influenced it. The, the reason I shifted from the institutional side of the business to the individual side was, was really because of what happened in, in early 2000. In 1998, 1999, we were still managing money for institutions. And then in early 2000, I started writing in 1999 about the coming dot-com crash. And I said, this is going to end very badly. And through a, a variety of things, I started watching what was happening with the individual kind of investor in the markets. And this was before uh, you know registered investment advisors were really a thing. Um, they, RIAs and fee-only advisors were really pretty new. And in 2001, I launched a, a registered investment advisory. At that point, most people were still charging about 3% to manage money. We were already at 1%. And because that was where the world was going to head to, we saw that trend very early on. We were there very early and built, uh, you know, built our platform around low fees, creating an inflation-adjusted returns for, and, and risk-adjusted returns for clients because that's what we saw was really lacking in the market. You know, this the the for the average investor, they don't get institutional style money management. They get buy and hold. They get sold product. They get sold you know storylines. They don't get the access to what is required to actually manage money through volatile markets over time. And that's what we wanted to provide them. So, on a very practical level, can you explain how you do that? Sure. 
Um, let's take a let's talk about uh, the markets uh, just this year, right? Um, it, it's interesting. You know, you go back to 2016, 2017, we went through basically over a year of returns where the market didn't move more than 1% in either, either direction. And, and we had 12 straight months of positive returns. And as we were looking at things like deviations from moving averages and, and looking at the trends of markets and looking at, um, you know, deviations of valuations from long-term averages, there are things that occur in time that are unsustainable. Markets are very much um, ruled by the laws of physics, okay? So if you think about a moving average as an example, um, moving averages, say the 50-day or the 200-day moving average, is the average price of a stock or an index over that period of time, right? So in order for an average to exist, that means the price has to trade both above and below that average over a period of time. So when prices get too far above or too far below a moving average, as an example, the laws of physics, in other words, gravity is going to pull that stock price back towards that moving average because it has to, That because you can't have an average if the price doesn't trade above and below that. So we had that ripping January, right? If you go back to January, the markets were up like 10% in the month of January. Um, it was this almost this parabolic rise. And we said then, at that point, of course, that was all due to tax cuts and, and conversation about tariffs and taxes. And we said to our clients at that point that, hey, look, this isn't going to last. We actually pulled all of our international and emerging market exposure out of our portfolios, basic materials and industrials. Why? Because those areas are the most sensitive to tariff and taxes. And also because the moving averages and, and a lot of the technical measures had gotten so deviated to the upside, there was going to be a reversion. And there was no way to tell exactly when it was going to occur, but it was going to occur. Markets don't correct by going sideways. They either correct rapidly or or they or they or they or they do something that completely unexpected, but no correctional process is ever done by going sideways over time. And the bigger the deviations are on long-term basis is, the bigger the correction processes are going to be. So when we saw that deviation, we raised a lot of cash out of our portfolios and and held that in on the sidelines. Then when the markets went through that correctional process in February and March, markets got oversold. We deviated to the downside of those moving averages. And, and so simply understanding how, how markets work over time, we manage risk by using cash as an example or fixed income, uh, bonds, et cetera, to hedge our risk and to move money from an underperforming asset to a performing asset. And it's just simply the, the very basic function of managing money. I mean, this is, you know, if you, you go back and look at any of the great investors over time, Paul Tudor Jones, Warren Buffett, etc., they all manage risk. You know, Warren Buffett is probably one of the often, most often misquoted investors on the planet. People, people that promote buy and hold as an example, they quickly trot out some of Warren Buffett's greatest quotes, such as, my favorite holding period is forever. Well, that's not what he means. Warren Buffett's favorite holding period is forever. So is mine. If I could buy a stock and never sell it again, that would be fantastic. But investing in markets don't work that way. GE was a great stock for 100 years. It's not a great stock anymore. Things change over time, and your portfolio management has to change over time. Warren Buffett's best investment rule is, one, don't lose money. Number two, rule, refer to rule number one. That's the key measure of managing money over time, which is the preservation of capital, because just like playing poker, as we alluded to earlier, once you're out of chips, you're out of the game. And so you've got to always maintain and control your principal first. Returns are a function of good management over time. And so is that how the institutions preserve their capital Absolutely. is using that kind of, okay. And so how is that different than the typical retail investor experience with an advisor? Well, if you go to, again, it's, it's not hard to kind of get the mainstream kind of view on things, which is, you know, pretty much anywhere you go, you get a lot. And look, I'm, what I'm about to say is generalized. Okay. Um, there are a, a, a numerous, 
group of advisors out there that do exactly what I do, and they do it very well. Um, I can I can list 20 or 30 off the back of my hand. Really great advisors that are focused on creating risk-adjusted returns for clients over time, and they do a good job of it, and they do it for a low cost um, because that's the way money management actually works. But the mainstream, if you go to a, a lot of major Wall Street institutions, their job, and I want you to think about this for a moment, their job is to make money. Right. So they've got to report earnings every quarter. So Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, uh, you know, uh, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, they report earnings every single quarter. Part of those earnings growth are creating revenue from their clients who are investors in the products that they sell. Wall Street is an organization built to sell product. Retail investors are the consumer. So if I sell you a product, I need you to hold on to it because when I get you to hold on to that product, I generate fees from that every single quarter or every single year, however often it bills. But that's the goal of Wall Street is to sell product to clients. Now, there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing devious about this or mischievous or wrong that is simply understanding the nature of the game. If you hire a real estate agent, you know that when that real estate agent sells your house, you're going to pay him a 3% commission. So that's an understanding going in. The problem is, is that Wall Street, the message from Wall Street has gotten misconstrued over time into this, oh, we're here for you. We're here to help protect your wealth and help grow riches. You know, and they show the advisor sitting on the beach with their client and they're all retired and happy because the markets went up. That's not really the way that Wall Street is designed to work. It was back in the 70s and, and the early 80s because back then, Commissions were paid to, to, to advisors and brokers who actually went out and did the research and bought stocks and bought and sold and did what they were supposed to do. And in the early 90s, we converted this whole system into an annuitized product through mutual funds and ETFs, et cetera, and these fee-only and, and fee-managed accounts that create an annual base of revenue growth because now I've annuitized the actual structure of Wall, how Wall Street works. So – the, the vast majority of this whole mentality of buy and hold investing is simply lazy. It's to sell product and it's to get investors to go into a basket of product and sit and hold it and supposedly write it out over time. But the problem is, is that two things occur to investors who try to do this. One, will buy and hold make you money? Yes, it will. Over enough time, if you buy and hold a, a pool of investments, say you just buy and hold the S&P index, you will make money over time because the uh, just sheerly the in, the rise in inflation over time the price will go up but there is a vast difference between making money and meeting your retirement goals a $75,000 income today if that's your income and that's what you need in retirement 30 years from now is not 75,000 30 years from now it's $150,000 at 3% or 4% withdrawal rates you can do the math about how much you will need in the bank in retirement to fund $150,000 a year inflation-adjusted income. Buying and holding an S&P 500 index over the course of 30 years will leave you far short of that goal because simply the growth rate of money over time isn't going to work, particularly when you start at valuations at 30 times earnings where we are today. Well, thank you for that explanation. It's um an explanation I do give to my clients, even though I am not Wall Street licensed, just from a general perspective, right? Because um, there is a very, very different way of looking at your investment portfolio and the advice that you're getting. And without considering any deviousness, I, I believe most advisors want to do the right thing for their clients. But from a Wall Street perspective, I call it, you know, the products that they're offering to the retail market, like Walmart, right? right? They're products off the shelf. And they're there to make money, just like Walmart is. And from the investor perspective and what their objectives are and what they're trying to accomplish, many times there is a conflict. Mm -hmm. And their expectation of what they can get down the road, because uh, so much of investing is about getting to retirement, the conversation that's not being had is getting to from retirement to dead, right? And from getting from here to retirement and paying for all of life that happens, right? 
No, the, the, look, you know, college and right. weddings and travel and living. Cause who wants to wait to 66 to really start living? And if you listen to Wall Street, that's really what it's all about. Pay for college and then you could start living at 66 because we'll get you there. Right. Exactly. And, and again, you know, we, we talk about this a lot. You know, again, I, I don't want, I don't want any of this to come off as saying that, you know, Wall Street's bad and evil. I'm not saying that at all. I, it's just my point is, is that you have to understand the difference in what you're subscribing to. You know, putting all your money into equities is fine, but you're taking on a tremendous amount of risk. And when you're wrong, risk is not a function of how much money you will make. It's a function of how much money you will lose when something doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And it happens much more often than people think. And it tends to happen at the worst possible time. Usually right before you're ready to retire (laughs) is when things tend to go horribly wrong. And I just want you to think about one thing when we talk about investing, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the kind of the mantras is, is that, Oh, you put your money in the markets and, and it's going to allow you to grow and have all this wealth. Well, if that was the case, and if everybody contributed to their 401k plans and their IRAs and they were all invested in the stock market like it sounds like everybody is. I mean, if you listen to CNBC and read blog posts, et cetera, it sounds like everybody's investing, right? So if that's the case, then why is it that 80% of Americans don't have more than $500 in the bank to meet an emergency? Why is it that such a large, vast majority of Americans are so poorly funded for retirement? Why is it that you know the average 401k plan balance is about $26,000? There's something wrong between what we're being told by Wall Street and what actually occurs and of course, a lot of this is also the fault of individuals. We live beyond our means. There's, you know, this is why we have record credit card debt in the country. But there is something wrong with the whole philosophy about buy and hold investing and, and investing money into the markets to make up for a shortfall of, of, of savings, right? Ultimately, at the end of the day, if we want to retire wealthy, we have to save money. That's it. I mean, it's not any more difficult than that. The reason that pension funds are so upside down is because they've been using high rates of expected returns, 7 and 8%, so they don't have to raise the contribution levels of their pensionees. Now they're vastly, grossly underfunded because they never made the 7% a year that everybody promised that they were going to make. Nobody makes the 7 and 8% a year on average because that doesn't really exist. Markets don't grow on average. They, they have big, big problems with variable rates of return. One year you're up 20, the next year you're down 10, and that is a vast difference of returns when you compound that over, over time than an average rate of return. And so we've got all these misconstrued messages about how money supposedly really works. And if you just look at the world around us, you would understand that those messages are incorrect and that we have to think about managing our money and investing very differently if we truly want to reach our goals over time. Lance, you sound just like me. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> you you must be intimately familiar with Dalbar okay. and the Dalbar studies. Yeah, I do. I do. A, yeah. I do a report on their study every year. Oh, I'd, I'd be very interested in reading that because really that is, that is, um, the message that the average investor gets, right? right? And there are some that say, and I won't quote names or I won't say names, but there are some that say you can expect 10, 11, 12% return a year on average. Yep. Well, you know, statistics lie and, Wall Street, again, I'm going to be very generous and say, you know, forget the deviousness. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Mm. And I think the misinformation is out there on purpose because they're really not teaching people about finance and money. And if all these people were really making those returns, why is it that there is so many people like you said, who really have no money in the bank, have very little money funded for retirement and are retiring very, very poor, really under, um, in, in a place where they're not going to have the same kind of experience in retirement they had when they were working. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and by the way, the name of our report is Dalbar and why you suck at investing. <laughs> so, and if you Google it, Find the article. <laughs> so, 
And that's a great title. That is a fantastic title. Because that's what... And it's the truth. It shows that the average investor is really bad at investing because of all the reasons that we we already know, all the psychological reasons, right? We buy high, we sell low, we do, we have... Uh, recency bias, you know, all these behavioral and psychological behaviors that uh, we're cursed with as humans affect our portfolio management. And that's why in our shop, right, the way we manage money, it is a very defined process. It's based on fundamentals, which define what we buy, and technicals, which define when we buy them or sell them. And the reason is, is that it extracts all of the emotion out of the equation, I may not like today's action in the market, and today did not feel good in the market. doesn't feel good, but we already had, had already sold into last week's rally and raised a good big cash. We sold small caps and mid caps, financials, and others that have been under a lot of pressures of late. We had actually sold those two weeks ago to raise cash and further hedge our portfolios. So, you know, it's that's part of that investment discipline that we have to adhere to. And today is one of those days, as an example, where you have a big decline in the market that people want to do something now. But when you want to do something, that's typically telling you that you're acting emotionally and not rationally. And that's the big thing that gets investors over time. So what would you say is a a good number that if someone is investing or has an advisor or an investment firm that is that is investing their retirement funds using your method of investing that they can expect when they're doing their projections cuz really that's what people do right right um the average investor is going to plug in a number because that's what they're trained to do i've got 100,000 today i'm going to plug in three percent or four percent and that's how much my portfolio can grow so when i'm 65 that's how much money i can take out do you have a number that you're willing to say yeah well that they can expect if they're working with your style of investing right well you know here let's let's clarify a couple of things right so first of all I know I know everybody wants a number, right? Every because look, this is a big challenge everybody has. Like, well, if I can just make five percent if I can just make five percent a year between now and retirement and I take out three percent retirement, I'm good, right? It sounds great, but again, now we're back to compounding growth, right? And markets don't compound over time. So I think the the one thing that you have to make sure and plug into your numbers. So, you know, take a spreadsheet and you know, plug in your $100,000. And then in year one, give yourself a 5% rate of turn. Year two, 3%. Year four, uh, 7%. Year six or, you know, year eight, whatever. Stick in a negative number here and there. Use some variable rates of return over time that average out to be three or four or 5%. And I'm going to give you a number that you can that you can put in the bank to, to work on here in just a second, but follow me through. So let's use some variable rates of return of spreadsheet. Let's let's take 20 numbers. Let's go out 20 years, use some variable rates of return over time and and run an average at the bottom. And that average is going to come out to be 4%. Now, 4% using a variable rate of return and 4% every single year are going to give you two very different outcomes because of the loss of money over time during variable rates. And look, they're even using a risk managed portfolio, you're going to have losses. In 2008, we were down 8%. The market was down 52. We still had a negative rate of return. Managing risk doesn't mean that you avoid all the losses. It means that you were working to minimize losses as much as possible. But in a market that crashes in 1999, 2000, 2001, 2008, the next crisis that's coming up in, in 2019 or 2020, you're going to have a 40 or 50% loss. And even managing risk, you're going to lose some money. There's no way around that. It's going to happen or you're not managing money. So, but the goal is, is to minimize those losses. Understand that, that markets do change trend and that we do want to minimize losses on the downside. Now, doing when you start running out your returns using a variable rate structure, you're going to get a, very, a much more realistic outcome. Now, what, now here's your number. Your number over the next 20 years is going to be 3%. 
And the reason is, is because over the next 20 years, we are starting at 33 times earnings. Going back through history, whenever valuations are elevated and above 23 times earnings, your forward rate of return over a 20-year period runs between 2 and 5% on average. Now, this is before inflation. So you take 3, subtract out inflation, what's your real rate of return? That's about 1. So the point is, is that from valuations where they are today, forward rates of return are going to be very low. Now, does that mean that every single year is going to be a 3% rate of return? Absolutely not. And this is why variable rates of return are so important. What 3% average rates of return over the next 20 years means is, is that next year we're going to be up 8. The year after, we're going to be down 40. Then you're going to be up 20, 15, 10. And when you average those out over time, you're going to wind up, not surprisingly, just like we did over the last 20 years, right about 3 4%. Because in 2000, we were running, you know, 42 times earnings. And over the next 17 years, the markets had almost a zero rate of return over that period of time after inflation. So I'm sure when you give those numbers, that percentage out, people just like they look at you like you're nuts, right? Yeah, I know. They, they just, I, 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 I so what you, everybody just stop listening to your podcast. Uh, <laughs> And I'm going to add one little thing here. Talk about, Lance, how the sequence of returns right. can affect your retirement. Yes. So you've got in, in your, um, in your forecasting, you're saying 3%. And then 20 years down the road, somebody retires. The sequence of return in terms of what's going with the market and they're investing, if the market, the year they re retire, does great, right? And the year after they do great and then the market goes down, that's a very different retirement Absolutely. than if the market crashes that first year of retirement and takes a couple years to recover. Absolutely. And, and look, the sequence of return risk is the biggest issue that is most overlooked in financial plans. Uh, when we run financial planning for our clients, um, we use a variable rate of return model inside of our financial plans. Uh, most financial plans use a stagnant rate of returns, right? Plug in three, plug in four, plug in five, whatever. Um, and it gives you a number. It says, oh, you've got a 98% probability of surviving. Um, we use an actual <laughs> variable rate of return. <laughs> you know, we've got a very, we use this variable rate of return model to give a more realistic projection about where things are. And that's based on valuations. So if valuations were 10 times earnings, the variable rate of return model has a much higher average rate of return over time than it does at 33 times earnings. Also, to your point, it also matters a lot as to where your negative return years come. For people that are getting ready to retire, you're running right into the potential for a big negative drawdown in the next two mm -hmm. to three years. If you're just getting ready to, to go into the markets, hang out for a little bit because you're going to have an awesome investing opportunity in the next two or three years. So, you know, it depends on where you're starting and where you're ending and where those negative rates of return come in. So thank you. You know, it's, uh, it's just a, a, a breath of fresh air to hear someone with your background talk about what I have found, and I've studied Dalbar for a very, very long time, and I actually am familiar with your article, and that's a great title. I absolutely love the title. And in fact, if you look at my blog, you're going to see that I uh, quoted your article and quoted that title because it's a, and I get, and I gave you all the, um, uh, I, I gave you the, um, what do you call it? I referred it to you, right? I didn't make it up. Um, I referenced you, but it's just, the truth. It's yeah. the absolute truth about investing. And that's why so many people have unrealized expectations when it comes to retirement and their funds and their money and their lifestyle. It just isn't the pretty commercials that we see, you know, uh, older, senior, retired couples prancing on the beach and yeah. playing golf and feeling like they've got all the money in the world to spend. It just isn't isn't reality. Yeah. And I personally would rather know reality so I can plan accordingly than living in a fantasy world and then having, you know, reality smack me in the face. Yeah. Um, real quick, because I know we're running on. Yeah, let me, say one uh -huh. thing. let me say one thing to that point. And this is the most important lesson that every investor needs to remember. 
Um, we say, we, look, we, you and I and everybody that's listening right now, we, we work hard for our money every day, right? We go to work. We work hard. We, you know, work for the man, gives us a paycheck. And when we pay all of our bills, we try to save a few shekels here and there and, and put those in the bank. Investing was never meant to make people wealthy. I mean, I must say that again. Investing is not meant to make people wealthy. What investing is meant to do is to adjust our savings for the rate of inflation over time so that the savings that we save have the same purchasing power parity in the future as they do today. When we take investing and turn it into gambling, in other words, we start trying to make investing a get-rich-quick scheme, we take on a tremendous amount of risk that puts our savings in jeopardy. So if we go back, if we could get, if we could just teach people to forget about the S&P 500, it doesn't mean anything to your long-term retirement goal, right? The, the S&P 500 is, an, is a mythical index. It's not real money. It, ha, it pays no taxes. It has no cash. It has no, no expenses inside of it. And so when people compare it and they say, well, you didn't beat the S&P index last year, who cares? It's going to be here for 100 years. You're not. Your life expectancy is all you have to work with. Our goal for investing is to grow our savings at the rate of inflation. So your benchmark should be the rate of inflation. Today, that's about 2%. You don't have to take a lot of risk to make a 2% rate of return in the market today. So how do you answer those who say, Lance, I've made a ton of money in my 401k in the last five years. Yep. And uh, I've been doing this game since 1987, like I said, right? And every year, about about this time uh, in market cycles, it was uh, the same in 98, 99. It was the same in 2006, 2007. And it's the same now. Uh, I start getting hate mail from people that read our articles about managing money, managing risk, you know, what we're doing. It's like, oh, you're missing out. This market's running up. And I will tell you this, I have been here since 1987, and I will be here after the next financial crisis. Most of these people that are running around talking about all the money they've made in their 401k plan, they give it all up and more in the next in the next downturn. And you saw that happen in 2008. And yes, people believe that that's never going to happen again. That was the same belief that was that came after 2000. And where we are today, we have more leverage in the markets today than we had in 2008. We have more risk built into the market than we did in 2008. We have more margin debt built into the market than we did in 2008. The next downturn driven by a recessionary environment is going to be as destructive or more than what we saw in 2008, simply because the Federal Reserve is no longer at the back of the markets. In 2008, the Federal Reserve had a $500 billion balance sheet. They've got a $4 trillion balance sheet today. That means the efficacy and also interest rates, the Fed rate was at 4 or 5% back in 2008. Today, it's at 2 The efficacy and ability for the Federal Reserve to bail out the markets in the next crisis is not near the level that it was back in 2008. In other words, the backstop is about half of what it was in 2008. The risk to the markets is exponentially larger than it was in 2008. So for the people that have done great in the markets over the last 5, 10 years, Here's one piece of advice for you. If your rate of return for retirement was supposed to be 5 or 6% a year, you just put 300% in your portfolio. That is basically 10 years of returns for your portfolio built in now. Take money off the table, put it in cash, and wait out the next crisis because otherwise you're going to wind up giving all those returns back and more. So I call, I call it the United States of amnesia, right? Because people forget. They forget the pain that they were in in 2008. I'm stealing that one. And it's it's amazing how that happens. And yes, you can steal it. <laughs> no problem. And it's, and it's how we're wired, right? It's just why Vegas exists, right? Yep. Why does Vegas exist? Because we are wired to chase, you know, mm-hmm. greed and... It's just how it is. And then when the markets start dropping, right, we're wired to, you know, sell low. We buy high, sell low. It's just how we're wired. And you can't trade. You can't invest based on gut and emotions. You've got to, you know, invest based on fundamentals and the technical. And um, 
You know, Lance, I so appreciate, I knew today was going to be great, but I had no idea really how enthusiastic and how really grounded you are in how, um, how you see the world like I do. (laughs) (laughs) It's all great when we have, when everybody agrees, right? It is. And it's refreshing because it's an uphill battle. We do not, uh, you know, our message is not one that people want to hear. They just don't want to hear it. They want to hear the other stuff. Unless the market, you know, when they lose money, then they want to hear our message and then they're open. But like, you know, like it's been said, the last eight years has been amazing. It's been an amazing ride, right? And it's not sustainable. And um, I think also politically, you know, there are a lot of a lot of reasons why politically, you know, when the market crashes, it's going to crash even harder because I don't think the feds are willing to prop up the market as much today as they were back in 2008. I don't disagree with you at all. And, you know, and again, you know, the thing here that we have to remember with all of this is that as individuals, we are naturally greedy and and we do i mean you know there's there's a there's an old saying that if women actually remembered the pain of childbirth they'd never have more than one child um and and so we do have this amnesia right we we forget pain um because we're not as humans if we remembered pain we would just all wind up living inside of our house and have a and never go outside again right because we don't want to be hurt as humans so we have this natural inclination to forget pain but if you go back and look at this market following 2008, most of the people that were investing in the markets in, prior to 2008 were not in the market after 2008. And the number of advisors that were in the markets prior to 2008 were not in the market after 2008. Since 2009, there are 13.3 million brand new financial advisors in the market that have never been through a bear market. They've never seen a bear market. All they've done is they're out advising people on a 10 uh, 10 year long, a decade long bull market that has been driven by a tremendous amount of artificial stimulus and low interest rates. They have no idea what's coming. And so that's why you only hear this message of on CNBC and everywhere else is like, Oh, just you didn't beat the S and P 500 get, you know, just buy ETFs. We are doing things today financially that are going to be an absolute disaster in terms of lack of liquidity, et cetera, when the next downturn comes. And so I can't urge you. Not, I'm not, look, and I want to be real clear. I'm not saying you need to go buy gold and, and stock up on ammo and beanie weenies because the world's coming to an economic end. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is, is that we've had a decade-long bull market. We've had a 300% gain. Just how greedy are you? Very well said, Lance. So what do you think about using insurance products to fund retirement and to reduce market risk? Because, you know, so many in Wall Street demonize, you know, like the whole life insurance policies and the indexed annuities because, you know, the Wall Street doesn't really pitch those or or, or market those. Um, Well, so a couple of things. First of all, there is no product out there that you should ignore entirely because somebody else told you to ignore it. Oh, you know, I, I, look, um, I'm going to drop some names here if you don't mind. Dave Ramsey, right? Whole life insurance is horrible. Uh, only by term. Um, Susie Orman, same way. Look, every product out there, every, every everything that's out there is a tool. And, and think about all these things as a tool within a toolbox. I'm trying to solve a problem. I'm trying to build a retirement that I can retire on and keep my family happy, healthy, and and enjoy life in retirement. That's my only goal. My job is is to assemble all the, the, the tools that I need to get there and to build my house in a proper manner. I can drive a nail with a screwdriver. It doesn't work very well, but it can be done. But if I use a hammer to drive the nail, I can be very successful with it. So you know, when people immediately poo-poo something and say, oh, that's a horrible thing, you should never look at that, you should step back and say, I need to learn more about this because there might be an opportunity there. Now, look, I'm not telling you that every insurance product is a good product. I'm not telling you that every annuity product is a good product. There are a lot of products out there that are not good products, and you need to be aware 
of a product before you buy it, right? Um, not every not every flat screen television is good to own. <laughs> so, you know, we want to buy the right product for the right purpose. I'll just tell you about some things I do personally. I overfund every year a whole life insurance policy. Now, Dave Ramsey would be rolling over in his grave if he knew I was doing that. But here's the problem. The first thing is, is that term policies I don't like. And I'll tell you why I don't like them. Because I spend money on a term life insurance policy and it and it winds up at zero. I lose every dollar I invest into a term life policy. I don't like losing money. <laughs> Remember, this whole conversation has been about not losing money. So if I invest in something that goes to zero, that's not a good investment for me. The goal of term life investing, which is, you know, the, the real premise is that when you're young, you buy this, but you're supposed to be saving the difference between what you pay for a term policy and what you would be paying for a whole life insurance policy. You're supposed to be saving and investing the difference so that when that term policy expires at zero, guess what? You have plenty of money in the bank to now self-insure yourself in retirement. The problem is, as Americans, we buy the term and we don't invest the difference. We spend it all. So now we wind up broke in retirement with no insurance. So Whole life insurance is fantastic because using the right product, you can build a tax-free retirement in, in down the road that is also judgment-proof. So I'm in a sue-happy business. I'm like you. I'm in the financial advisory business. Everybody wants to sue an advisor when they, something doesn't go their way. So having money that is judgment-proof, and, and this goes for doctors, this goes for uh, CEOs of corporations, if you're, if you're in a, an environment where you have legal risk or you have a potential risk from Sarbanes-Oxley and others that you could wind up in a lawsuit, then having a product that can provide some judgment-proof assets is a brilliant thing to do. It's a great tool for your retirement. Annuities are also a great opportunity. They grow tax deferred in a lot of cases, and they then and can provide a guaranteed income uh, in retirement. The one thing that you need to be careful of is a lot of these annuities promise a guaranteed rate of return from one time. But make sure you read the fine print and understand what those quote unquote guarantees actually are. A lot of them aren't exactly what they proclaim to be. So just make sure you understand what the product is. But again. You know, somebody, if you get with somebody like you as an example that really understand these products and how to integrate them into a portfolio strategy and into a wealth management strategy, these can be very beneficial enhancements to not only lowering risk, but also guaranteeing future income in retirement and guaranteeing growth over time. So not just to exclude them because somebody says, oh, insurance is bad. That's that's just what we call stupid. Yes, thank you. I couldn't have said it better. And really, when you look at combining annuities with whole life insurance, which is what I I focus on primarily is the whole life insurance, and having a well-managed investment portfolio, if the market is going down um, and you've got an annuity with income that you can turn on, or you've got whole life insurance policy with cash where you could take income, you can afford to, to ride out, um, the, the market going down, or you, you can afford to have your money in cash for a period of time. You know, the sequence of return issue, right? It can work for you and not against you. It's just a tool on the tool belt. Exactly. And look, and that's a brilliant point too, is that, and I, I should have said that, is that during a market decline, if the market's down 10%, you're taking out 4 or 5% of your portfolio every year, you actually accelerate the decline in your portfolio during a 10% down year. It's not, you don't, you're not down 10 in the market plus your 5% withdrawal. So you say, well, I'm down 15. No, it's more like 18 to, to 19 uh, because you're accelerating the downturn in the markets by withdraw, by drawing money out of a declining asset base. So to your point, exactly right. If I have a, a variety of tools at my disposal where I can say, look, I'm not going to withdraw out of my investment account this year because the portfolio is declining. I'm going to turn on my income stream for my whole life insurance policy or from my annuity, and I'm going to take income from there this year, that is a brilliant strategy to navigate downturns in markets. 
Thank you. And the term I use it a lot is you're accelerating the declination of your value in your portfolio and you are going to retire with less money. So that whole, you know, the, the retirement projection that you had that you were go- not going to outlive your portfolio, you've just accelerated when you're going to run out of money when you start, you, you know, when you take out money in a down market. But if that's the only tool in your toolbox, that's what happens. And that's where, you know, where we started the conversation, you know, where does Wall Street focus, right? It's from getting you from here to retirement, really not so much on how to get from retirement to dead. That's correct. And it really isn't about net worth at that point. It's about your cash flow. Because what good is it if you have millions of dollars of net worth, but you're counting pennies, right? And you, you can't travel because you don't know what the market's doing or the market's down or, you know, whatever. Yep. No, absolutely right. Uh, I keep you waiting. might, I keep you might remember Peter Lynch. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I know we're singing to the choir, but you might remember Peter Lynch yep. in one of his famous books from the eighties, where he said, take out 10%. If you've got money in mutual funds, you take out 10% a year for your retirement and you'll never run out of money. Yep. I bet he hates that that's in writing somewhere. Because yep. You know, that's what he said back then. Isn't that insane? And today, Wall Street is saying, okay, you can take out, you know, maybe 4%. Others are saying 2.8% is the exact number uh, without any other tools in your toolbox, right? Yeah, exactly. No, look, I mean, you've always got to remember market cycles are market cycles. And when Peter Lynch was around, he's one of the greatest bull market cycles in, in, you know, the history of the markets. And even though we've had a very, a very long decade bull market return, um, you know, it's it sure hasn't felt like the wealth expansion that we saw in the late 90s. So, you know, it's, it's been a very different run this time around because it's been very migrated to the top 10% of the economy. Yeah. Very well said. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Living Wealthy Radio. And please let our listeners know how they can find you online. Oh, it's easy. Go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. And uh, we post blogs and newsletters and articles there absolutely free every day talking about exactly this, uh, how to manage your money better. Excellent. Well, thank you so much again, Lance, for joining us today. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. 